Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Before we jump into our text tonight, and I'll be a little bit kind of in Bible teacher mode in just a moment. But two things that I've been taught that I want to name but also do my best to live out um, from mentors that have come before me. The first is um, do for some what you wish you could do for all. So to kind of live a life of generosity, realizing that sometimes that means being generous, even though you wish you could do it for everyone, you can't. But you are still going to do it. Does that make sense? And the second thing is something from my pastor, Mark, and he says, wise men bring gifts. It's a little play, you know, because wise men brought, okay, cool. You're with me. Thank you for the fake laugh. I appreciate that. So I'm a big believer that when I had the privilege of entering into a trusted space like this, being given trust, invited to share, that I want to do as best I can to be generous and to be a blessing. And so my staff team and I from DC Chi Alpha We wanted to bless all of the PVCC students with a free book from the swag store from DC Chi Alpha. So there you go. Now all the students from UVA are like, that's why he said the first part, do for some what you wish you could do for all. Yeah, I'm good at support raising, but I'm not that good, okay? Work with me. Thank you. Going back to the words penned by Luke, the physician, we're back in Acts, which often is titled Acts of the Apostles, Acts of the Holy Spirit. I like to refer to it as the acts that took place when the Holy Spirit was empowering the believers. It's basically helping us to pick up on this Jesus story, post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, post-ascension. And this is one of my favorite messages that I have the privilege of sharing with you during this RE Re weekend. You can't spell retreat without RE, okay? I've been waiting to say it the whole time. I'm sorry. I just had to say it. Pete, like, teed me up for it. And I love that I'm getting to teach out of Acts 16, Because this is a little bit of a mulligan of sorts for me because I've taught this passage wrong so many times in the past. And so this becomes redemptive in my own story as a leader and pastor and communicator because I'm going to do hopefully a better job at teaching this text than I've done before. Because there can be things that we recognize that are true about God that are untrue about a specific text, right? Like, let's just imagine you're a core group, and you're reading Genesis, and then you show up on a Saturday night dressed as, like, the first seven days in the creation narrative. Can you guys imagine that with me? I think we have people that are actually doing that, right? Like, that have done that. You can stand up. You can stand up. No, stand up. Sorry. I said you, I, like, gave you the option. I didn't want you to have the option. Yeah. I mean, clearly... Clearly, this was not in my notes because I'm still processing everything that I have the privilege of witnessing. This is a lot of sensory overload. Um, But I did have this in my notes to mention that in the Genesis creation narrative, 
we get a picture, a portrait. You can stay standing. No, stay standing uncomfortably. Yep, you chose to wear those costumes. Own it. We see an attribute, a function, a role of God in a specific way in that passage. Can anybody name what that is? Like we see God doing what? Like how is he revealing himself in that passage? As creator, right? All right, y'all can sit down. As creator. Now it's true that God is also a judge, that he's also just, that he's also loving, and that he's a father, but that's not what that text is talking about. Do you see where I'm going with this? Those things you could say about God are true, but they're not accurate about the text. This is a passage where I think I have taught things that are true about God that weren't true about the text. And that's not necessarily like sinful. I wasn't in in a heretical moment. I mean, I've deleted the podcast from our website, but that's another story. But I think I was teaching about what I knew about God, and I was reading too much of my own ideas into this text. I was coming to the text with what I wanted out of the text, to be honest. Even as a professional Christian, I mean pastor. But see, I have to know what it meant to them then before I can know what it means for us now. I have to walk us through this process of observation, interpretation, and application. I have to sense what is a text telling us about the character and the realities of God, and where is it inviting me into the story? The Bible is a gift to us, but it wasn't originally written just for us. There's some interpretation that we have the privilege of doing to understand across time and culture and language of what it could mean. But first, we have to make some observations, So although this text and our evening is focused on worship and prayer, I want us to be as honest as we can with the text as to what this text is telling us. The things that we might bring into the text aren't necessarily bad. Just like if someone in your core group read Genesis 1 and 2 and said, man, isn't God a good father? I don't know if you'd correct it in my core group. I probably would. I'd be like, that's not what this is about. But my core group's kind of small. Maybe that's why. I'm too correctional. This passage is going to show us something incredibly important about normative Christian life. About how believers can and should respond to life's realities. All right. Acts 16, starting in verse 16, I believe. Once we were going to the place of prayer... We were met by a female slave or servant who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you to be saved, telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days, verse 18. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Okay, let's pause. I think this is one of the first miracles that started with annoyance. It's pretty crazy. Verse 19. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar. 
They're advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. Verse 22. The crowd joined in the attacks against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. There's so much going on in this story. Verse 24. When he received these orders, the jailer, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword. He was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Verse 28. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. Verse 33. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and all of his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrate sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and then threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. Verse 39, they came to appease them. They escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, and then they left. I've made the mistake of preaching this passage, like I mentioned before, with my own ideas, with my own notions, with things that might be true of God but aren't true about the text. And I've often taught this passage in a way that hasn't read the entire story, and where you start and stop a story gives the story its meaning. Hayden White talks about that, a religious philosopher, in his book, The Content of the Form. And he says, the way in which we report the news, the way in which we tell stories is part of the message itself. The medium is the message, in a sense. I've often taught, preached, tried to admonish students to live into this story, but I've typically stopped the story early. I've stopped the story around verse 26. And then I've made the story about worship being uh, a, a, a spiritual discipline, a tool, a reality that can shake foundations, that can bring freedom. And it's true that worship can do that, but for Luke, the author of this account, that is not the height and the crescendo of the story. It was in my sermon 
but my sermon was impartial. Because although it's true that worship can bring about freedom for those that are worshiping, Luke finds the height, the apex, the pinnacle of the story, not in the freedom of Paul and Silas, but in the freedom of the oppressor, the jailer, and his whole family. Because we don't have any evidence that Paul and Silas were praying and worshiping for their own release. And I would support that point by looking at what happens. They experience the doors violently flinging open. The foundations of the prison are rocking, are shaking. Their chains from their feet in the stocks are off. And yet, they say to the jailer, don't harm yourself, we're all here. There's only one type of person that doesn't leave captivity when they have the opportunity to. And it's someone who is already free. Paul and Silas don't rush out of that messy moment because they already had interior freedom. We read why they were imprisoned. It started with the miracle that was started with Paul's annoyance. I just love how that's in the text. It's just honest. And yet they're not going to yield even while they're in prison by closing their mouths. They're just going to do what believers do. Pray and worship. If they were praying in worship for their own release, I would argue they wouldn't have stayed until the end of the story. In other words, they were already free so they could then be freed up to fight for others' freedom. Although in physicalities they were captive or limited, spiritually they were living free. It's like a Mandalorian moment, like this is the way. Prayer and worship is the way of the believer. I love that Paul and Silas were willing to stay when they could have gone. And because they stayed and already understood that they were free, it led to somebody else being set free. I think it's really easy in our American Western individualistic context to think once I'm free, I'm good. I'm freed from sin, I'm freed from captivity, I'm freed from addiction. And yet, in the gospel narrative, we are freed for a purpose. In other words, freed people find other people. They waited, they saved the life also twice. I want to give them full credit of the jailer. They intervened in a suicidal moment. I don't say that lightly, like that's what the text says. He woke up, he saw the doors open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself because he thought he didn't do his job and that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul says, don't harm yourself, we're all here. It's another instance of a double deliverance. He's healed physically, he's freed physically, and then they don't stop there. They have a conversation about what must I do to be saved, and I love how the jailer knows what I often forget. When you receive salvation, you're invited to invite your family into it. The jailer also passes grace along. He doesn't keep it for himself. It seems like he takes him to his house, which I don't know 
what it was like to be a prison guard in that time, but I don't think you usually brought your clients home. And certainly not for dinner or water baptism moments. So it's true that worship can absolutely change the atmosphere. But I think we have a limited view of worship when we think that it should only change our circumstance and not the circumstances of those around us. I also love how Paul and Silas were willing to let grace go to a place not just where fellow prisoners would be hearing the good news, hearing the songs of worship, but the people that imprisoned them. That's like a scandalous picture of grace. Like if I have the opportunity to like influence someone, to share grace, to allow freedom to pass from my life to theirs, I'm not typically thinking about the person that imprisoned me. I'm not typically thinking, man, I really hope this person that has made my life difficult, that they would get the grace that I've been handed. And yet Paul and Silas are willing to let grace be bigger than their circumstance, to let freedom be larger than their own story. But I also love that Paul and Silas played a role in setting the trajectory for the jailer's family. I hope you didn't miss it in verse 31. When the jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. They created a vision of an alternate life for that jailer and his family. And what I want to communicate is that you don't just have the opportunity, the joyous responsibility to share your faith with a classmate, a coworker, a professor, a TA, but that could actually change the trajectory of an entire family. Not just your own family, but somebody else's family. I think it was one of my first years on staff. I'd finished the internship, but it was before I was directing. And there was a young man in my core group named Toby. And I must not have been a good core group leader because I thought he was a believer the whole time. And then I found out he wasn't. I'm just being honest, okay? I have a therapist, but she said I could share this. Because at the, at the end of it, and we had done like an intense core group. Like we did a, a tithing our time, live dead challenge, two and a half hours daily. And he said yes to that. I'm like, I think only, only certain believers would say yes to that. But then we're doing kind of our affirmation night at the end, our highs and lows, kind of remembering the semester, and it's his turn, and he says, I think the best part of life group for me this semester is when I became a Christian. And I was like, oh yeah, no, for sure, that was awesome. I, mean, I thought you were the whole time, but it was an awkward moment for sure. Like, I don't know who was doing one-on-ones with him. I'm not going to say it was me, but I'm not going to say it wasn't me, Okay. I remember, though, Toby, he, this was in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, okay, of this semester where I thought he was a believer the whole time. I was wondering why he was like a little skeptical, skeptical about tithing his time, but then he did it, so I just assumed he was just kind of like a kind of hard to motivate Christian. I didn't know the whole time he wasn't a Christian, and he's doing two and a half hour devos that led him to become a Christian, clearly. And I remember him saying in between the holidays in that semester, I think I'm going to take some of the free Bibles that Chi Alpha give. 
And at our holiday meal, I'm going to take them and give them to my family. And I'm going to say to my parents, I would love for us to study the life of Jesus together. And I thought that was a bad idea. Like, I don't know if I was just having like a bad missionary moment, but I remember being like, wow, Toby, that's like really intense. And, and, but I didn't realize that he'd already done it for Thanksgiving. I was picturing that he was doing it for Christmas. So I clearly am not being a good core group leader here or life group leader. And I was like, yeah, man, that's really intense. Like you could take the Bibles. I'm not worried about the Bibles, but like holiday meal, talking to your parents saying, man, we should investigate Jesus together and just see what they say. And so after I kind of like, you know, tried to somehow, how do you get out of that fumble, by the way? Like, hey, man, I don't know if that's a good idea. And he's like, hey, man, I already did it. And I'm like, oh, how did it go? May God be with you. Like I said, I'm super supportive of your boldness. And he said, man, my parents decided that they would start reading the Bible for the first time. And I was like, man, I knew it. I told you to do it. I knew it. Dude, if you follow my leadership as I follow Christ, it's going to be great. (laughs) Fast forward to now. His parents are on the cusp of committing their lives to Christ. Years of prayer, years of investment. I also have the privilege of working with Toby. He serves as the Chi Alpha director at Georgetown. It's pretty remarkable, but that does make all the guys in my core group nervous. They're like, wait, if we commit to this group, do we have to lead our parents to Christ and then join staff for five years? I'm like, I mean, you can. It's an option. We have a model and pattern, but no, it's not required. I love that Toby, as like a three-week-old believer, understood what I wasn't willing to admit. That when we have a full, vivid picture of grace, no one should be off-limits that we would share and invite. Even though it requires relational risk, and even though he really did not know how that holiday meal was going to go. And he did it respectfully. He brought them the Bibles. I mean, they were the free Chi Alpha Bibles that kind of are like a little flimsy. So he didn't go for like the leather bound, but that's okay. He was still learning. So he brings a gift and he says, I'd love for us. He said, I, Jesus has come to matter so much in my life. I wonder if we might investigate his claims together. And I love that he gave them agency to make a decision instead of doing what I normally do which is say no for others. It's like, you know, bad core group leader moves, bad Kafa director moves, just bad Christian moves. I just say no. I assume that someone will say no, and so I don't even give them the opportunity. Paul and Silas, they're worshiping, they're praying, they're singing hymns to God, they are unashamed. I think sometimes I let, um, I almost said strategery, (laughs) University of Alabama, Roll Tide. I let my desire for strategy to outpace my obedience to the Father. Because if I were Paul and Silas and I were in this story and I had just got imprisoned for being a little bit loud about Jesus, I think I might have taken that time to pray in my mind. Or seeing it kind of as a whisper. Like I could be faithful but still kind of save face. Because I'm not trying to extend my prison sentence. 
Because in that mindset, I'm worried about being captive, but they are already free. I love that they do not retreat. They also don't assume that they did something wrong because things got hard. I mean, they went from like casting out the spirit in what I imagine is like this fortune-telling, crystal-buying lady. And then they just kind of double down and continue to worship wherever they are. Continue to pray whatever is going on. They're falsely accused with trumped up charges in verses 19 and 20. We don't read any complaint. And sometimes I can be guilty of if things aren't, if I don't have a positive response, I must not have been in the right. But that doesn't make sense in the life of Christ. Like his life, which is perfect and blameless, leads to a lot of pain that seemed permanent and only later we found out was temporary. And as I read this story, as I think through Toby and the story God's writing in his family, as I think through the opportunities before us, I wonder how many of us have valued comfort and would step out of the situation before the breakthrough comes for someone else. That's not what Paul and Silas did. And yet I want you, I want the guys in my core group to experience personal freedom from a host of issues and habits and vices, but I don't want it to just stop with them. I don't want freedom for one to be enough. I want us to be a community on mission, taking this joyous responsibility, realizing that freedom might have come to me, and I can't explain why, but I'm unsatisfied with a campus that doesn't also have access to freedom. I'm not convinced that everybody at American University or Georgetown University would say yes, but I am convinced that my job is to pose the question. As Lewis reminds us in Mere Christianity that Jesus in his purest form is a fork in the road where people have to make a decision. And I think I oftentimes am guilty of trying to make Jesus so polished so comfortable, so easy to access that I've stripped him of his true power to do what he wants, when he wants, for our good and for his glory. At times, that means that I have assumed that I know how best to reach the campus more than Jesus because I'm unwilling to proclaim. I'm unwilling to be honest in public spaces with what I believe and why. And I think I've overcorrected because I've seen so many believers on campus and in my city do it wrong. So then I've chosen not to do it at all, and the text doesn't allow that. Jesus doesn't allow that. I have to critique by creating. I have to be a participant in a new reality. I go on short-term team trips so that I can help create a pathway where students can experience healthy missions that gives dignity and honors partners and has a long-term emphasis relationally. I proclaim the gospel on campus not out of a place of pride, 
Like I have the right answer and you don't, but I am in right standing and I want you to be as well. I also love that for Paul and Silas, their faith was clearly deeply personal, but it was never private. The other prisoners were listening to them. Which begs the question, who is listening to your life? Who is listening to your story? Who is reading the text of your decisions, of your emotions, of your engagement with the campus around you, and what is the story that you're telling? It's also interesting that at the end of the story, they receive like an official release, additional credibility, a future opportunity that Paul will have to have conversations about the gospel with higher legal authorities, all because they didn't run out at the first sign of potential freedom. It reminds me kind of in the Old Testament context of Moses, who on his own tried to free those that were in captivity and ended up killing someone, but with the help of God, helped deliver a million people. In our own strength, we cannot reach our campuses. In our own strength, we cannot even defeat our own insufficiencies and vices. We cannot overcome our own habits or sins, but with the Spirit, all things are possible. We are invited into an incredible story of redemption, of grace, of beauty. And our responsiveness is prayer and worship. But it's not just prayer and worship for ourselves or prayer and worship when it feels good, but prayer and worship at all times, in all seasons, so that others may know, so that others might hear. I love in verse 28 don't harm yourself. We're all here. It's like he's telling the jailer it's going to be okay. The jailer goes in one moment from almost experiencing physical death to going from physical life and spiritual life. And then it threads through his entire family. And I love how it says in verse 34, he was filled with joy. If you've been a follower of Jesus for a long amount of time, I think the temptation is that we would become joyless in our response to God. Our, our, our get-tos would, would become have-tos. Our opportunities would shift into obligation. And I love the way that new believers can remind us that there is a joy in responding to Jesus. The jailer, I'm sure, served as a reminder for Paul and Silas who are already on the right path, clearly. And Toby served as a reminder for me. I think that 
at least in my own life and experience, I find I can be easily discouraged when the voice of the enemy or the voice of culture point out things that seem true but aren't fully true. Let me kind of let you into kind of my prayer life. Or maybe <laughs> lack of a healthy prayer life at times. So maybe you have a prayer journal like this. Maybe it's on your iPad or iPhone, whatever it looks like. But a few years ago, someone asked me a question that I just can't shake. And I'll be honest, it's probably going to be a question that will burden you. And you're welcome for that. It's a question that's weighed on me so deeply. And it was this simple question. If tonight God opened up this prayer journal and answered all of my prayers in a moment, in an instant... Would my life simply be easier and more comfortable? Or would the kingdom of God be bigger? In other words, would I go from having that duct tape Honda Fit outside to a Kia Telluride and that's it? I know that was very niche. That's from my prayer journal. Or would more young men and women on our campus know Jesus? In other words, Brian Zond, author and pastor, says this. We don't only form the words of our prayers, but our prayers end up forming us. No one ever sets out to have a self-centered Christian life, but oftentimes our prayers are so much about self that it really becomes a religion of self. In our context, I, I encourage those that I mentor to not just plan their own life and then put Jesus sprinkles on top and pretend that that's following him. If God answered all of your prayers... Would more people on grounds or on your campus know Jesus? Or would you simply be more content with the major you chose and the person you're trying to date would say yes? Would your life get better or would Jesus' name be brighter? I think it's interesting because Jesus spent so much time praying So much so that at one point in the gospel accounts, the the disciples are like, well, you know, John, the Baptist, your cousin, teaches his disciples how to pray. Why don't you do an elective for us, Jesus? That's not how he really said it, but the person that had like the message, Holy Bible shirt, that inspired me. That was the message paraphrase. They basically were saying, You're living a life beyond what we're living, and it must have to do with prayer, so would you teach us to pray? And that's where we get the Lord's Prayer. Both as a reminder of the ordering of our heart, because our prayers form us. There's a sequential order to what things are addressed in what order. As a prayer that we can pray with thousands and millions who have come before us across all different traditions. But also a reminder that we are praying that the will of the Father would happen and then we're taking action steps to be agents of that change. I think prayer is a very vulnerable thing. I think we can be incredibly honest in our prayers which is unique because sometimes our prayers can also be performative. 
I think one of my staff carefronted me about that. They confronted me with care. That's the term we use. Clearly, I'm a sensitive person. Carefronting. I can make prayers about what other people hear and not about communicating to God my heart. I want to do another exercise, if that's okay, and I'll just assume you're going to say yes. We're going to, sounds weird, we're going to pretend like we're going to pray. I know Chris Cole's going to start immediately praying and fasting in this moment. We're not actually going to pray. But what I want you to do is pretend that we're in a prayer meeting, and I want you, with your eyes closed, to find a posture of prayer. You interpret that to whatever it means normally for you. Okay, then don't actually start praying because I'm still in the middle of a sermon, but we'll be time to pray later. We've got about 12 songs lined up. Okay, we got you. So can you do that now? You're closing your eyes. You're not looking around yet. And enter, a, so let's just pretend I said enter a posture of prayer. Okay. See, so yeah, most, you can open your eyes now, but stay in, your, stay in that position if you don't mind. You can open your eyes, you can kind of look around. A lot of people are praying the way that I would pray. No one taught me to pray this way, but I was formed in the way of my church tradition in what other people were doing, right? And I, I would often pray kind of my hands clasped. You know, I was kind of, this is not bad, right? I'm just telling you, I, I relate to like 80% of the room. Like I would be head down in respectful reverence. I I'd folding my hands. I don't know where that came from, but I would do that too. And I think to, I would kind of bow my head, another sign of reverence or respect, but also to kind of focus. I'm not looking around. And Henry Nouwen talks about this in his book, uh, Wide Open. I believe that's the title of it. And he says that in prayer, sometimes we enter a posture physically of clenching that we don't intend to enter, and we have to unlearn that reality if we want to be open and hopeful in prayer. Now, he's not saying that if you, you know, bow your head, close your eyes, fold your hands, that you're closed off to the Lord. So don't hear that. But he is saying that sometimes our physical posture sets the tone for our spiritual reality. And so he says that to, to be formed in the way of Jesus is to live open-handed. To live with the posture of receptivity. It reminds me of the Quakers, another Christian tradition that I've learned from, is that they would often turn their palms up, and you can, you know, get out of your prayer position. Sorry, I should have mentioned that. Some of y'all were still, like, going for it. You're like, are we going to get to pray? Not yet. The, the Quakers would often, you know, posture their palms up to, to signal to themselves. They're not signaling to the Lord necessarily, to themselves that they're open, I know for me, if I only pray like this, for me, I'm just saying for me, my prayers tend to be about me and what I'm experiencing and my difficulties. And I've got a lot going on in my life, so I think I, I need some prayer. But when I pray with open hands and a little bit more outwardly focused and postured, my prayers tend to follow that physical reality just for me. You have to decide for you. But I love how the Quakers would also do this thing that I sometimes lead our community in, our fellowship in, and that they would at times put their hands palm down to signify to themselves that in order to take hold 
of something from the Lord, they had to let go of what they were holding on in themselves. My pastor says it like this, you can't be full of the Holy Spirit and full of yourself. So I think sometimes people come into our community and our worship gathering, and right now at American, we meet every other Friday night for like dinner, interactive teaching, communion, and worship. At Georgetown, we meet every Thursday. It's kind of a traditional service, then communal abiding afterwards. But I think people come into those things, and they see me, and I'm like doing this, and they're like, what is that guy doing? And it's because I feel like I have a lot of things to lay down before I can even pick up. Because I feel like I have a lot of things, ideas, conceptions, my own pride, ego, my own thoughts, how I wish God would work. And I have to let go of that to grab hold of what he'd have for me. I can't have my will and God's will at the same time. I can't live out my priorities and his priorities and think that that's an integrated life. I have to be willing to surrender, to let go, to grab hold. Part of why I look forward to these Saturday evening moments this weekend and in the weekends with my own communities and fellowships is because it gives us a chance to let go of something, to grab hold of something new. I'll just share something that I share with some of my core group somewhat recently. And I want to be careful because I know I'm a very intense person. So I want to be careful how I say this, but I did say it to them, so I'll just pass it to you. I think some of the people in my core group were struggling with, do I really need to spend this much time with Jesus daily? And I had this question for a few semesters. And then I realized that functionally, they didn't need to spend a lot of time with Jesus because they weren't living on mission for him or with him. In other words, the people that were living on mission, taking risks like Toby, two and a half hours was barely enough. But the people who were living a private faith, they were like, do I really need to graduate from 30 minutes a day to an hour? And my answer, of course, was like theoretically yes, but functionally no, because it was all staying with them. There was no overflow. There was no outlet. So they were full because they didn't allow themselves to be emptied into the lives of others. I was wondering why abiding in devotional life and prayer and worship weren't the normative responses of those that I was mentoring. It's partially because they weren't ever pouring out. And so they never felt the need to be filled. During my time in college, I probably went through what some would term a dark night of the soul. It was one of the first times I was seriously identified that I had like clinically diagnosed depression and anxiety disorder. I talked a little bit about that in another session. And I remember just being at a loss. I remember crying in my grandmother's house in this tiny little town in Texas, crying in front of my dad, which is like, oh, so embarrassing and cringy. I just felt so distraught and discouraged and it wasn't a feeling I could shake. And then I heard the still small voice of the Spirit say this. If Jesus doesn't do anything else for you in your entire life, would the cross be enough? Like if Jesus doesn't heal this, if Jesus doesn't show up. And I knew what the right answer was. 
I was homeschooled, okay? The Christian Q&A, I got that on lock. But my heart was like, I don't know. And I had to find a place to say yes to Jesus, even if my circumstances wouldn't change the way I wanted. And I wish I could say that the end of the story was the moment I said that. My parents threw this party. Everything was great. I no longer had to see a therapist and take medication. It wasn't like that. But light began to break through over the next few weeks. Once I had decided that I was going to follow Jesus no matter what. And I closed the doors to exiting faith. It's only then that the windows of grace started to open for me. I don't wish that story or that experience on anyone. But I've come to a place where I have to say yes to Jesus because he's true and he's worth it, even in the moments when I don't feel it and I don't sense it. Thankfully, he did go to the cross and leave an empty tomb for us. And he's probably worked in your life and will work in your life more than that. But I had come to a place where I had made faith about me. Fast forward a few years later, and I'm working with Chi Alpha in D.C. And man, this student was really leading up, right? I'm supposed to be meeting and mentoring him, and he's mentoring me. And another time where he's, I'm getting carefronted, he's carefronting me. He says, Blaine, I feel like you've made your whole spiritual life about your mental health concerns. And maybe Jesus has more for you than that. And I was like, mm, after I bought your coffee, you're going to open with that, Jared? Okay, Jared. Don't forget who's the director here, Jared. Lowercase j, Jared, okay? I'm not even going to capitalize that. Fellow, okay, fellow. I had gotten stuck in my own story. And I love that Jared followed it up with, I'm sure that God wants to work in that part of your life, but maybe right now you could focus on another area and let him speak into that. For Jared, a student at the time, Prayer and worship was his normative response to anything. And what he was really helping me to see is that even though I had an unanswered question right here, God had provided and been faithful and good over here. And maybe I could kind of Philippians this thing and focus on what was trustworthy and praiseworthy and true and good. Instead of just focusing on where there was lack or need or disappointment. But I also love that Jared wasn't trying to spiritually bypass my struggles by saying, oh, it doesn't matter, or it's okay, or don't you know the Bible says don't be anxious? Like, I've been told that a lot of times, and at this point, I'm like, I, I b- believe me. <laughs> if that verse worked, it would be way cheaper than what I'm trying to do now to manage this thing. He saw me, but then he helped me live beyond my own story in that moment. Sometimes I think we get stuck in the story that we're in because the narrative that's on repeat might be a voice of our past, the voice of the culture, the voice of the enemy, and Jesus is wanting to write a different story in our lives. And he may start at a different point of intersection than we might desire. In that semester, because I took Jared's advice, the Lord really started to work in my heart as it related to prayer, generosity, and sharing the gospel 
with people who I had once shared the gospel with and I had written off. That had nothing to do with my mental health concerns, but it's interesting, when I started focusing on others and not just on self, there was some sanctification of self that started to take place. Most of the difficult desert seasons in my life, my own life, my own story, most of them, nine out of 10, I didn't realize at the time, but they were self-exile. It wasn't that the Lord had stopped speaking, I had stopped listening. I love that Matthew 28 paints us this picture. It's like this last lecture of Jesus, right? As he's ascending, he's giving them this great commission, which is not just to be memorized, but to be lived out. And it's not a great suggestion. It's actually a command for all of us, not just for the staff here. And he says, I will be with you always. And I think sometimes I jump to that without realizing that he's basically saying, I will be with you always as you're on mission. For me, in the desert seasons of my life, it's when I stopped being on mission. I became fully focused on self and I asked God where he was. And I think he whispered gently, I'm still on mission. Will you join me? Will you meet me? My priorities haven't changed. Blaine, I care for you, but I care for others who don't share your name. Blaine, I want to work in your life, but often I'll work, I'll work in your life by working through your life. I thought he wasn't listening. I thought he wasn't speaking. I thought I was just distant and I just had to kind of stick it out. But then I realized that there are other people fighting bigger battles. And if I would just lean into their situations a little bit, somehow my own story would shift. And I can't explain why. I can just explain that that's my experience. So if you're here and you feel incredibly distant from the Lord, like you haven't heard his voice in a while, I want to first say thank you for still showing up. God gets a unique type of glory when we worship when we don't feel like it, i.e. the story of Job or Ecclesiastes. That's what my core group calls Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes. It's a tough, it's a tough book, it is. And yet I would have to ask, because of my own experience and how I'm reading these texts, if you haven't heard the voice of God in a while, I would lovingly, pastorally ask the difficult question, when was the last time you were on mission with him? When was the last time you lifted your eyes up from your own circumstance to see the hurting world around you? And again, I love that God is both and. He doesn't now that I'm already in want to just grace to be for others and not for me, but he's doing it collaboratively. I think of that, that verse, and Eugene Peterson paraphrases it so well, to learn the unforced rhythms of grace. It's this verse in the gospel that's telling us, like, if we're weary, if we're tired, if we're burnt out, Jesus says, come work with me and let me show you. My burden is easy. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. And I was studying this with one of our staff, and I think it's really interesting that when Jesus, when we need rest, Jesus' idea is to teach us how to work differently. 
That's what that text says. Jesus doesn't say, hey, come rest with me, come Netflix with me, come hang out with me, come disc golf with me. I mean, he could be in some of those activities, I'm sure. But he's saying, are you tired? Are you burnt out? Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? He's saying, let me show you how to work. I'm so similar to my students in that I will binge Netflix for hours and then wonder why I'm not rested. Jesus is inviting me not just to go from exhaustion to exhaustion, but to change the way I work so that I could work with him and then rest with him. Now, I'm not against Netflix, HBO Max, Hulu Plus. I've got them all, okay? I'm doing quite well for myself. Thank you very much. These aren't trial accounts either, okay? And no, they're not my parents' accounts. Catch that. Boom. Support raising. It's possible. Even got Disney Plus. I know. And they raised the prices. That's beside the point. Those things aren't bad, but those things aren't best. Leonard Ravenhill once said this, entertainment is the devil's substitute for the joy of the Lord. And I was like, well, he didn't have the apps I have. Thank you, Leonard. But I love that he's touching at this reality that C.S. Lewis talks about in Mere Christianity. It's not that our desires are too strong, it's that we're far too easily pleased. I'm content with escaping through someone else's story by binging something else in an app because I'm unwilling to live the greater story that God's asking me to live. I'm just talking about my life. You parse out the apps how you want to parse them out. I'm just saying I'm tempted after a long day on campus of sharing the gospel to just completely escape and turn off, and that's when Jesus is saying, turn to me. I'm emptying myself, and then I'm filling myself up with something that's subpar, I'm using entertainment as a way to vaccinate myself unintentionally to the true power of rest in Christ. And that's just me. I think I'm learning as a follower of Jesus, as a pastor, as a director, as a missionary, as a core group leader, I'm learning that I need to pray and worship in response to all things and that I cannot work alone and then rest with Jesus. I also cannot work with Jesus and then rest alone. It's all with him. In other words, if at the end of the day, all I get Jesus, if all I get is Jesus, he suffices wonderfully. Not all my questions are answered. Not all the things in this prayer journal that was bound by Zach are complete. I don't have a video testimony moment for every struggle in my life. I'm still in process in about a hundred different areas that you don't want to hear about. And yet, God is inviting me to respond like believers have always been encouraged to respond through prayer and worship. And at times, the prison doors might be open, but because I'm already free, I'm not going to rush out. I'm going to see who else needs freedom. You're here. You have some measure of freedom, some picture of Jesus. But may that not be enough for you. Not until your roommates, classmates, professors, coworkers have an opportunity to say yes or no to what you've been offered. As the worship band comes up, I want to help prepare us 
for response. It's so appropriate that we have an extended amount of time as we've talked about the normal thing that Christians should do, the mountain or in the valley that we are invited to pray and worship. And that although prayer and worship can change our circumstances in the atmosphere, it ultimately leads us from a place of freedom to seeing other people set free. Because we don't worship in order to get God's attention. We worship because we already have his affection. It's not like he's not looking at you right now. And then you start singing. He's like, oh, there they are. Yep, they're in gore. Heard that sound. Blaine sounds terrible like normal, but the band sounds great. No, he's already watching over you, pursuing you in the midst of your story. The altars are open, and you and I have the chance to steward this moment for our own freedom, but also for the freedom of others. For our own breakthrough, but also to see breakthrough in the lives of our family and of our friends. It's going to be messy. It's going to be difficult. It's not going to be easy, but it will be incredibly meaningful and worthwhile. And Jesus will be with us throughout the process. Why don't you stand as you're able? I just want to take a moment for us to to listen, to kind of give God our full attention and affection. It's part of worship. That's the core of worship. And then we get to do so through the gift of music and song through some very talented people. But the thing that makes us different from a great Christian karaoke moment is what you bring to it in your interior life. Because sometimes we sing loud thinking that that's passion when Jesus is saying, I want to touch your heart. It's not the volume of our voice that matters, but are we willing to bring him the difficult stuff? Are we willing to bring him the great stuff? Are we willing to recognize that every good gift is from the Father and in every difficulty he wants to speak life and truth and grace? So I want us just for a moment to listen, to pause. And it's okay, maybe you do want to fold your hands. Maybe you do want to open up, up, Maybe like me, you have some things to let go of and you need to remind your own self of that. Before we start singing, let's just do that for a moment. sense that there's a few people here that you've never come to an altar space or worship in a physically demonstrative way. And maybe this is your moment to step one step past comfort into something new. And Jesus would be saying to you, taste and see that I am good. 
So that's you. I invite you to begin to respond. Whether that's kneeling in a posture of surrender, even coming to the altar now. I think there might be another person or two who you are afraid that God is calling you to ministry. You're like, oh, I didn't go to that elective. Mm-mm. I'm not even going to sit with the staff during lunch. No way. And maybe the Lord is saying, I'm not calling you to it because you don't want it. I'm calling you to it because it reflects your greatest desire, which is to love me and love others. If that's you, I'd invite you to respond, come to the altar, find a place to pray. also maybe a person or two in here I sense in my spirit that you've been living in a way that even you yourself in a moment of honesty would term as hypocritical that publicly you, you say things but privately you live in opposition to that that in front of your fellowship and your core group, you, you put on this kind of posturing that doesn't reflect the reality of your heart. And here's what Jesus would want to say to you. That he loves you not for who you pretend to be, but for who you are. In your messiness, in your brokenness. And he doesn't want you to just put on a mask. He wants to renovate your interior life. He's not mad at you. He's not disappointed in you. He just wants more for you because he loves you and cares for you and sees all that you can be in him. If that's you, I'd invite you to respond. Find a place at the altar. Take that step of faith. Kill the flesh for a moment by stepping out and saying to yourself and to your creator, I want more than just playing pretend with this game of faith. I want the real thing, the authentic thing. I don't know how, God, you could love me if you know all that's wrong with me, but I'm going to trust that you do and that you're good. God, we pray that as we sing, as we worship, as we respond, if, as we're honest about the difficulties in our heart and life, that we trust that you're good and that you're going to move. That this is the start of a beautiful chapter in the story that we're allowing you to write. As we kneel, as we sing, as we pray. God, we ask that it would be for your glory and for our maturity. Would we be willing to look undignified for the sake of finding freedom? Not just freedom for ourselves, but freedom for others. Would we rediscover that we should pray and worship as a normative response to life as we experience it? And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.